Welcome to the Sword and the Trowel podcast of Founders Ministries. Founders Ministries exists for the recovery of the gospel and reformation of churches. I'm Jerry Longsword. I'm Tom Askell. Thanks for listening to the Sword and the Trowel today. Hey, thanks to our supporters, the fam, for all that you're doing as you labor alongside of us. And thank you to those who have supported Wield the Sword. Wield the Sword is our upcoming docu-series. Uh, we're very excited about this. Fancy words, fancy things going on. <laughs> Founders Ministries, we coin words. I can't even say it without <laughs> laughing, but it's going to be great. And uh, we're seeing support come in for that. Um, we want to remind you that we have a matching fund of $10,000 that's set up to run through March 1st. So if you give between now and March 1st, what you give is going to be doubled. That is up to $10,000. We haven't met that mark yet. And so if you're thinking about contributing to Wield the Sword Project, we would love for you to do so. Yeah, and we want to say thanks especially to those uh, Founders Alliance members, both churches and individuals. Uh, They help us to make plans to move forward in various ministry ways that uh, we have anticipated this year. We've we've looked ahead at the calendar, and we got some wonderful things planned, uh, both in store for a conference that we have scheduled that will begin or will be at the beginning of next year, 2020, and then also for a special event at the Southern Baptist Convention in Orlando. Mm. So please keep your eyes out for that. We're going to be announcing some some wonderful things that we plan to do at the SBC the day before the SBC actually begins in Orlando, Florida. And we couldn't do that without the support of our Founders Alliance members and Founders Alliance churches. If you'd like to become one, just get on the website and you can find information there. If you have other questions about it, you can contact Contact Jared, contact me. Uh, we would welcome your partnership in this ministry. Well, these are eventful days. What's, what's happened recently? These are eventful days um, in uh, evangelical life and particularly in Southern Baptist life. Uh, there was a recent article that was published in the Baptist Press, Baptist Press News, which is the main press arm of the Southern Baptist Convention. It's a public relations arm of the Southern Baptist Convention, I think. Okay. So, um, you know, I'm just getting schooled, really. We're all getting schooled. There's all these Baptist, (laughs) there's all these Baptist different, you know, publication deals. And so Baptist Press is like the official one for the Southern Baptist Convention, if I understand it correctly. And they came out with an article called Q&A with the 2019 Resolutions Committee about Resolution 9. They just did this Wednesday, February 5th. So, which was only four days ago, and uh, we've had a lot to do with that resolution because you tried to amend the resolution on the floor of the convention, and that resolution or that amendment was received as an unfriendly amendment, and then we went on to uh, have the resolution established. We did not vote for that resolution. Uh, We're very involved with a number of people on the committee. You've been involved with um, Dr. Al Moeller, who was standing against the resolution uh, for a while on the front end, and then has mentioned, at least in the wake of it, that um crti what is it they they're not merely analytical tools that they are a worldview and so the much drama has continued we created the film by what standard which had a whole part to play in this and every time it seems like things might die down a little bit something kind of stirs it back up it's as if the lord would want us to really have a debate about these things and to deal with these issues in kind of a a clear and concise way yeah. i want to i want to get us started by just showing you a little bit of the flavor of what was said in this um, statement from the resolution committee. There is a um, 
frequently asked questions from the 2019 Resolutions Committee. One of those questions is, why did Resolution 9 on critical race theory and intersectionality focus on how the theories are appropriated? That was one of the concerns that you and uh, Tom Buck brought up. Why We're not concerned uh, with about how, how people are applying the uh, tenets of critical race theory. We're concerned about the origins, where they come from, and that the fact that they're a worldview. This is the response from the committee, from the article. It says, we believe that the concerns that people People were expressing over CRTI focused on the application of the theories because of the assessment. We consulted the statement on social justice and the gospel to help us with the wording of the resolution. This statement addresses concerns over the emergence of social justice in evangelicalism. It goes on to cite the statement on social justice and says it's because of the statement on social justice that they were focusing merely on the application. So we have discovered why (laughs) the resolution had such shortcomings. It's basically because of you, because you crafted the statement on social justice, the original articles, they were tweaked and edited and shifted around. But it's because of those guys that wrote the statement on social justice justice in the gospel that resolution nine is so poor yeah mystery solved yeah well um you know it's interesting i wish they had consulted the whole statement uh on social justice and the gospel i don't know that any of the committee members have actually signed the statement and so they looked at it i would assume as uh uh, an opponent or a opposing viewpoint to try to understand. Which but, is a fascinating point, by the way. I still don't know if any of the seminary presidents have signed this. Any of the entity leaders have signed this. I know. Right? No? Answer's no, no. No. And of all the professors at all of our seminaries, handful. four, five, handful. three. Yeah, handful. Yeah, and, and so that whole that whole statement is trying to address issues that have arisen out of these ideologies. And it mentions the ideologies in that first denial uh, saying that the worldviews that extend from them, and it was not just merely an application. These are inherent in the tools themselves. That's been the whole argument all the way through, and it's become clearer and clearer to me, quite honestly, as I've continued to study, and as you and I have talked, and we've talked to other people, and we've listened to those who have taken different points of view than we have. Uh, I do think we have some fundamental differences as to what CRT, intersectionality, critical theory actually are. And I think that's reflected in this clarifying statement by the uh, 2019 Resolutions Committee, which, just by way of notation, doesn't exist anymore. The committee only exists during the time of the convention up until then, and then it's over. And so they don't exist anymore as a committee. Okay. We'll have a new committee this coming SBC. That's right. So I just got off the phone what, two days ago with one of the members of this committee, who's a friend and has been uh, before the committee was was even organized, before these debates really started. And uh, had another uh, very helpful conversation, a conversation in which we disagree about things, but able to disagree very uh, clearly, plainly. I'm very thankful for people that still want to do and have that conversation over the whole past year. There's been certain people that I've tried to reach out to uh, that wouldn't aren't weren't weren't willing to actually speak with me. Well, this brother was and we have our disagreements. But thinking about this, this, um, this article itself, why, why this? Why now? How are we supposed to process it being February and having this article come out in Baptist Press from the Resolutions Committee? Well, here's the editor's note. It says, because of the ongoing discussion involving Resolution 9, the Resolutions Committee of 2019 sought to shed light on both their purpose in addressing the topic and the process by which the resolution was developed with the goal of clarifying any misconceptions. Now, that's fascinating. I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a wonderful statement. It's fascinating when you take that statement and use it to evaluate 
what follows, uh, I would argue that they fall short of what their intentions are here. Ongoing discussion involving Resolution 9. Lots of people have been discussing it. And I don't know, we've, we've had tens of thousands of views of uh, by what standard, and churches are continuing to show it. I've been contacted by three or four pastors in the last week who are scheduling times for their congregations to watch this in order to educate them mm-hmm. about critical race theory and intersectionality, and Resolution 9 plays a pretty significant role in that uh, documentary that we did. Yeah, we have tried to force this discussion, mm-hmm. and, and rightfully so, I believe, mm-hmm. because of our understanding of how dangerous these, quote, analytical tools, so-called, are. Yeah, yeah, and maybe we back up. We need to back up, and we need to be constantly uh, laying down the big picture here because I was reminded just in my conversation with this brother that was on the Resolutions Committee recently of trying to clarify my desire. The, there's a number of reasons that we're concerned about this resolution, um, and not the, not the least of which is a concern about real racism, yeah. a concern about real misogyny, a concern about real abuse, a concern about real um, mistreatment of people Injustice. who are given to uh, homosexuality and other kinds of things. We're because we're concerned about justice. We are concerned about Resolution 9 you know, because we're concerned about the gospel of Jesus Christ being clear and then Christians living well according to the law of God and by faith in Christ in the world. So that was very helpful because I know people said, oh, I just thought you were racist. Like people really think that. I'm like, okay, well, that's that's the way this this thing is designed to work. So what I would say, what I would say to people that are looking at this article is we have to we have to be willing to have the hard, clear debates and conversations that are required in such a situation. We, we can't be distracted. So yes, the tone needs to be Christian, you know, all of that kind of stuff. That's good. And the tone has been commended of this article by Dr. Al Mohler. Right. He said, you know, the tone, tone is, is right. The tone is good, but read through it clearly. And here's, here's what stuck out to me. Let me make my case. There was talk about, well, people have judged our motives and they shouldn't have. Okay, fine. Mm-hmm. Um, there's talks about people have questioned whether we hold to the sufficiency of Scripture, and they say we do hold to the sufficiency of Scripture. Thank you for affirming that you hold to the sufficiency of Scripture. I had no doubt that you would say that we hold to the sufficiency sure. of Scripture, and I'm not going to get into questioning your motives. But the two things that remained very clear from all of the questions and all of the answers, that this resolution's committee, they've signed their names to this, they've written their names out, they uh, do believe that critical race theory and intersectionality rightly assess social dynamics, at least in some way. So as a theory, it rightly assesses what's going on in the world. They hold to that, and I disagree with that. I'm not saying that uh, there are ideas that come from critical theorists, uh, that every idea that comes from a critical theorist is always wrong. No, they're, they're going to get certain things right. But when it's taken as a theory, I don't believe that it's rightly assessing the world and how, how the world operates, how sin happens and how especially how you get solutions to it. Um, so that's one clear thing that they're doubling down on. They're saying, we, we stand by this resolution. We still believe it functions this way. And the second thing is that they believe that you can use critical race theory and intersectionality as analytical tools helping you analyze things without adopting it as a worldview. So you can use the theory really without theorizing or without having it shape the way that you're looking at the world, which I disagree with, at least think is highly, highly suspect. I want to get my feet right on the ground and say, I think if you start doing this, you're going to be drifting away from the authority and sufficiency of Scripture. 
Scripture. You're going to be drifting away from understanding the world the way uh, God has actually established it and the way that it operates. Yeah, because embedded in critical race theory and intersectionality are ideas that are antithetical to the gospel. Mm. They're antithetical to the world, word of God. And so if, if you take the tools up and you say, oh, well, we're, we are committed to the gospel, we're committed to the world of God, we're just going to use these tools. Well, uh, as has been well said, uh, analytical tools have consequences. The tools you use matter. Mm-hmm. If you take up a hammer in order to kill mosquitoes, you, you might get a mosquito or two, but you're going to destroy the house in the process. Yeah. And so you, it's embedded. It's baked in. Yes, yes. And, th- and that's, that's because it's a theory. Critical race theory. And intersectionality, I believe, is called um, at least like a, a theoretical framework. I right. think is how it's, like, uh, it's a key part of the definition. So you're not, people are arguing general revelation, as we've mentioned. And people did that on the floor of the convention. People are continuing to do that. Um, I, I, we hold that there are people who are not Christians who rightly understand certain things about God's world, and we can learn from them. Sure. Absolutely, that's the case. That's not what's being presented here. What's being presented here is a theory or a theoretical framework which involves a worldview, which involves fundamental assumptions about um, sin, about something like racism, uh, about oppression. These things are sinful. Right. Well, they're, what they're trying to advance in the world is not sound. It's like saying, um, well, Darwinism. Darwinism is a theory. Well, let's use that as an analytical tool to understand really how things operate. Well, the problem is Darwinism is flat wrong about macroevolution, about the thing that it's theorizing about. So I'm not going to take that theory... I'm not going to take that theory and use it as lenses to understand how the world's really operating because it's fundamentally flawed. And and it it doesn't mean that the critical race theorists or the folks that advocate intersectionality or critical theorists get everything wrong. Mm -hmm. They say some right things, but the things that they say right have nothing to do with uh, or that are not unique to their theory. Mm -hmm. They say things right by common grace, but their theory theories are dead wrong. Their theories have embedded within them godless ideologies, godless understandings of the world. And if you take these lenses and say, we just need to put these lenses on, you need to know what you're putting on. You're putting on lenses that are going to distort reality according to what God's word says. Because it's, as Horkheimer put it when he wrote the original essay on critical theory, he wanted to make sure to distinguish critical social theory from traditional social theory. Traditional social theory, I was taught that, got a degree in sociology, is you look at people, you look at groups, you try to understand the connections and the dynamics between groups and within groups, and you you learn from that. And, and it's fascinating. I'm still fascinated by that, and I think there's a lot to, to be gained by uh, understanding how those things work. Horkheimer says, yeah, that was fine for then. But what I'm talking about is critical social theory. It's not enough to describe. We must criticize with a view to transforming. We want to change. We want to overthrow, which in the postmodern form of that is we want to deconstruct, tear down what is. And you're doing that because this is Horkheimer's definition of truth. He redefined it as whatever fosters social change. Yeah. There you go, man. This is what Anything truth goes. is. So it's it's true because it fosters social change. That's a man who's not who doesn't believe in uh, truth as revealed by 
God the Creator. Doesn't believe in God. Doesn't yeah. believe there is a doesn't, God. It doesn't believe in ob- objective truth that it's that it's there. And even if it doesn't foster social social change, it's still true. You and can't it, have that definition. And so the theory comes from him: a critical theory, a critical legal theory, a critical race uh, theory, and. So if that's your starting point, then no, I'm not. I, I don't want Christians taking that theory and using it to analyze the way that the world works. Because I, I, even I, they have a statement in the Baptist Press article where it says uh, it can help us to see things that are there. Do you remember where that is? That it's, it's fascinating. Even the way it's worded um, was striking to me because because my concern with my concern with the definition of truth that Horkheimer presented that we just identified is that that's helping you see things that are there that are not there. You're dealing with it. You're dealing with a, a, a faulty ontology of the, the world, the way that it is. Mm-hmm. And it, as I'm looking at critical race theory, I'm, I would work through Delgado's um, kind of hallmarks of critical race theory. One of his principles is that racism is ordinary. This is him. Uh, he's first. He says first that racism is ordinary, not aberrational. Uh, normal science, the usual way society does business, the common everyday experience of most people of color in this country. So racism is just standard. It's ordinary. This is the way that the world That's works. That's a presupposition, by the way. And and yeah. And then he goes on. He talks about uh, basically white people have a position of power over people of color. Thus, will only support racial justice when it promotes white interest and their finances. So this is getting into this white over color ascendancy and interest convergence. What's striking with with a lot of errors is they have a little kernel of truth in them. So does fallen man have a way of using each other in order to advance in the world? Absolutely. Like that's a because of the fall, this is what people very often try to do. It's not that every single person does it, but we, every single person sins. Some people sin in this way, and it's, it's something that you're going to see in the world. They try to use you to get to get higher, and then when you don't help them get higher, they're going to be done with you. That absolutely happens. But critical race theory, it happens. It says it happens because of white people. Like white people, are the ones who do this. So what I'm concerned about is that as that's taught, and then somebody experiences what is common to the fall, it's going to double down on their conviction that oh yeah you see what's happening is this white convergence theory kind of thing or this convergence theory is going on now i'm i'm deeply concerned about that what if i'm if i'm using critical race theory as an analytical tool what am i going to see in the world i'm going to see exactly well i'm going to see what they said when what's really going on in the world is something different yeah and and it it, you can see how this extends far beyond the the question of race it extends to every relationship and that's why these ideologies never are satisfied to stay confined because this is the way the whole world operates and so capitalism becomes the, the boogeyman in this system because what do you have well you you've got a, a system that i think you know the bible at least acknowledges the the legitimacy of it whether you want to go further than that or not i'm willing to have that conversation but where one man sells something to another man at a fair price that they both agree to well what, what's happening the seller is using the buyer and the buyer's using the seller. What you're doing, you're entering into a relationship that is mutually beneficial, and you're agreeing to do it. Now, does that get abused? Oh, absolutely, it gets abused. As capitalist systems, have they been abusive? Absolutely, no doubt about that. But the idea of people negotiating mm-hmm. and working to a mutually agreed upon uh, resolution uh, that's not a bad idea. Mm-hmm. There, there's something incredibly biblical about that. But you see, hand in hand, with these analytical tools, we have 
having swept over our society in the last 10, 15 years now, the, the ideologies that lead people to say, man, socialism's good. And what is it, like 40-something percent of your generation thinks socialism is a viable option? Oh, boy. I, yeah. hope, I hope not. I think that's about <laughs> right. I mean, and that's where we are. And that's, that's just more evidence of what we're seeing. I mean, that's the kind of the mm-hmm. outcome in the world. And these are the things now that are being imported into the church. Right. And, and so why, why I'm upset with this Baptist Press article is because it points, I'm sure that people have questioned your motives. Like, okay, people have questioned our motives. <laughs> okay. So people question our motives. People said bad things about us. And, and we can address those things in some degree, but we have to deal with this, what's at the core here. Can this be used as an analytical tool without being adopted as a worldview? And is it really going to happen? Is it worth all of the, the trouble? I'm thinking very pastorally here with the way I, I watch people um, begin to fall into evil surmising, suspicion. Mm-hmm. You know, you can see, we know this as pastors. We watch people start to go, why, why did he say that? Why did he do that? I think he did that for this reason. I think he did it for this reason. I think there's there's something going on here. When it's really not going on there, and you're like, you know, wake up, wake up. Don't, don't assume that you have some secret knowledge of something that other people can't get to. Deal in, uh, you're a finite human being, deal with the word of God and deal what, with what is there. And, Right at the heart of critical race theory and intersectionality, right at the heart of this critical theory way of looking at the world is the view of oppressor and oppressed. It's the it's the basic deal. Now, somebody might say systemic injustice kind of thing, and I'm okay with the language of systemic injustice if we're clearly defining what, what we mean. But if we're talking about if that just becomes the same thing as oppressor and oppressed is my fundamental worldview, well, then when you read certain things— that's what you're going to see. Yeah, you got so, the lenses on. Yeah, so if you see like uh, some people with money helping out somebody that doesn't have money, and your your lenses are well, you know, the oppressor class, the the people with the stuff, only help people when it's in their favor and when it's going to be good to them. Then you're going to be like, well, that giving that money was an act of oppression, mm-hmm. you know, and. And you you will see that if the lenses, if your if your basic worldview, which is a worldview embedded in critical race theory and intersectionality, is oppressor and oppressed, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you're going to start seeing things that aren't there I mean, when it really wasn't oppression. And so, if you start to you know, if everything becomes oppression, well, then nothing becomes oppression, and you're going to have people getting away with real oppression because we used we used worldview lenses that say everything is about oppressor and oppressed. Exactly, and I, the thing that uh, concerns me about this Baptist Press release of the committee is it seems like the committee is just doubling down. You know, they said, well, there's so much confusion around this, and so we're going to try again to explain what we were doing, what we mean. And and the implication, the clear implication is the problem is in people who disagree with it and have questioned the legitimacy of Resolution 9. If only we understood, if only we weren't so dense, if only we weren't so confused. And I, I think that is... Uh, Maybe they didn't intend it this way, but it's just condescending. And I wish they had taken seriously the legitimate criticisms and questions that have been raised and say, okay, let's discuss this, you know, rather than just kind of dismissively giving us a word salad that really at the end of the day Mm -hmm. doesn't connect any dots. I mean, two purposes, they say, for issuing this statement. One was to explain the purpose for which they came 
out with Resolution 9, and two, to explain the process. And I would say that on both counts, they failed. I don't think I understand any more of their purpose. If they genuinely believe that critical race theory and intersectionality are viable tools, if, as they put it, uh, they can help us to address issues that are going on in society, if they really believe that, well, then show us how. Show us how they do this, and let's have that conversation. Because what you just articulated says, no, we disagree. Whenever you start with the presupposition that we are in an oppressive society and the oppressors are part of this hegemonic power structure and everybody that's not a part of that is part of the oppressed and everything the group that does in the hegemony does is inherently oppressive, mm-hmm. whether good, bad, indifferent on other scales, it's inherently oppressive in this system. We reject that. But if that's the way you think and that's what you believe these theories are are saying to us and that we need to begin to think like that, let's have that conversation. Don't gloss over it. Gloss over it. Gloss over it. Let me riff on that for a minute because this is how any organization is going to stay healthy, right? There is error. There's erroneous thinking. There's drifting. I mean, you read the Bible enough. You know that these are are things that are true. So what do you have to do as a family, a church, or an organization? When error comes in, you have to address it. You have to deal with it. Is it true that it can be used as a as a tool and not adopted as a worldview? Or is that a really bad idea? I, I know that there are people on this committee that really believe that I can employ this theory as an analytical tool, and at the same time, I can hold to the authority and the sufficiency of Scripture. There's people that really believe that. And there's people that think that's a foolish idea. There's people that think that's a bad idea, and it's going to hurt people. You know, those guys need to have a debate. Absolutely. And we need to say, we need to make a decision as, as a convention. Are we for it or against it? Because if, we're, if we agree with this, this first idea, then we need to keep Resolution 9. We need to say this is our statement. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You can, and if we don't, then we need to rescind Resolution Nine, and we need to move on. But what we shouldn't do is gloss over it and say, you know, um, it's just, just, it's not worth talking about. And when we do, there's been people that have been mean, and because people have been mean, we're just going to try to all use a nice tone and keep moving along. That's the way you drift into error. And yeah. I think I'm afraid we've operated that way. You know, a long the same time. reason that we don't have uh, sometimes certain entity heads when they're asked direct questions won't just answer the question. It's like, where did we get in this fog? It's just like, <laughs> it, it, just repent. It's like if we did something <laughs> wrong, we just say, hey, we did something wrong. And I would contend that if somebody's up there saying. Hey, I did something wrong. Please, those who are employing those kinds of people, take into consideration what it means when a Christian repents. Yeah. I don't think you have to fire somebody necessarily if they make some kind of error. Well, if they're correcting that error, that's a good sign. Maybe you, you know, there's going to be times where the error is erroneous, is significant enough that somebody does need to not be in the position that he or she was in. But keep this Christian mindset. It's like you can repent and keep going on. And maybe we have this culture that says, I'm never going to admit that I did anything wrong. And so let me just cover this up and smile for the cameras and move everything along yeah i I hate that i mean i I think that will be uh, a a contributing factor to our downfall i mean christians Mm -hmm. don't live that way we have a gospel jesus died for sin if i sin if i'm wrong about something that's that doesn't have to be terminal we have a savior for that but if i cover it up and i think oh no no i'm going to double down now and i'm going to a safe face rather than mm-hmm. deal honestly with the evidence that, that comes against me that tells me I was wrong, then, man, we're on a bad path. And I, m- my fear is that uh, we are far more concerned about tone 
than we are content. You remember when the first trailer came out for By What Standard? Mm -hmm. Everybody lost their minds over the tone. Oh, the tone is horrible. The tone is edgy. The content? What about the content? Can we talk about the content? Oh, no, no, no. The tone is bad. And now, you know, we've got this statement, and it's wonderful, and our tone ought to be right. I'm not what what Jesus' tone was like when he was turning over tables. <laughs> yeah, well, the tone wasn't. You know how people just, you know how people, it's funny, because I already hear the objection, because people are like, you know, don't point to this about, G, you know. I wonder yeah. what Jesus' tone was to call people whitewashed tombs. Yeah, so the, when we're more concerned about tone than we are about content, then, man, we're setting ourselves up to be played in a really bad, bad way. So my question would be, okay, the, the tone's great, but what does this statement actually say? And I don't think it says what they told us at the outset they intended to say. When I look at them saying, oh, we're going to explain the process, well, they don't touch the process, at least not the questions I have, because the process is this, that there was a messenger from California who submitted a resolution on critical race theory and intersectionality that went to the committee. The committee saw it, and as they say in the statement, well, we thought we needed to deal with it, and so we wanted to bring out and express the concerns. Well, let me just read you a couple of comments from the original resolution, and then you go back and read Resolution 9 and see if they're anywhere close. They're not close at all. So the process is we took something that was black and we turned it into something that was white. And, okay, how did you do that? We deserve an explanation. The original resolution says this, whereas critical race theory and intersectionality are founded upon unbiblical presuppositions descended from Marxist theories and categories and therefore are inherently opposed to scriptures as the true center of Christian union, it goes on, whereas critical race theory upholds postmodern relativistic understandings of truth, whereas critical race theory divides humanity into groups of oppressors and oppressed and is used to encourage biblical transcendental truth claims to be considered suspect when communicated from groups labeled as oppressors. I mean, I could go on, whereas both critical race theory and intersectionality breed division and deny humanity's essential commonality. Mm. I mean, All that just, sounds good. I like that. Yeah, I mean, that I was, second that motion. Okay, that was the original. Okay. And then Resolution 9, as we know it, came out. There was a process of taking the original submission and getting to what actually was presented to the committee or to the convention. And the committee, I think, if they're going to say, hey, we want to explain the process, they got to help us understand how do you go from something that says 2 plus 2 is 4 and submit something to us that says 2 plus 2 is 5. And while they haven't told us this, we, we're right to – assume and right to consider the case that they thought there were some errors at least maybe there's more stuff in the first resolution oh, that sure. you didn't read sure but they they say well we disagree with the language that was just said um and we agree more with what we've presented which is very clearly a different position it's not just saying hey this is this is double plus no good stay away from it but this is saying hey this theory we can kind of yeah. harmonize this kind of thing with Scripture. Keeping it under the authority of Scripture, we can use this theory. That's their position, That's and that's the position of Southern Baptists now that have voted on it. Yeah, it says, we're seeking to help our convention address an issue some Southern Baptists were already concerned about by showing how this uh, critical race theory and intersectionality uh, has been applied to the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture uh, from sources outside the Bible. In other words, how Christians have held to the sufficiency of Scripture while dealing with ideas that come from outside the Bible. We were just trying to show how to do that. Well, these ideas, as you've articulated, aren't just outside the Bible. These right. ideas are antithetical 
to the Bible. And so the fact that somebody who holds to these antithetical ideas might say something true, it doesn't legitimize the antithetical idea that they hold. And that's the danger. That's where we need to have the debate. And I just don't see a willingness on the part of those who are championing Resolution 9 and are now doubling down and saying, oh, no, this is a good resolution. I don't see there, I haven't seen a willingness to have an open dialogue about it. And so it does set us up for what's coming in Orlando because there will be a motion, there's going to be an effort to rescind Resolution 9. And I support that wholeheartedly. I'm going to mm-hmm. call on every Southern Baptist to support that. And I would assume that these committee members will be against that. And if so, I hope there will be time allowed for an actual attempt to exchange ideas mm-hmm. as to why we think this is bad and why they think this is good. Yeah, absolutely. Well, boy, we need the Lord's help. We need the Lord's help when we look at the mess that we're in. I I I'm glad to know that the committee has doubled down and said this is where we what we believe. Sure, if they believe um, it, absolutely. I, I'm glad to have that clarified. I wish it wasn't the case. Yeah. What I've really been hoping for is that people would say, you know what, we made a mistake. This is this, wrong. This was just what we meant is that you know racism happens and let's take note of it. Yeah. What we meant is uh, misogyny is a real thing. Uh, abuse of people that commit homosexual acts is a real problem, and let's deal with it. Uh, you know, you could walk down the lines of intersectionality, and you could you can identify each one of those categories and acknowledge that there is wrongdoing that's done to these people, and let's try to live biblically and you know live justly in the world. It's like Amen. But when you import you know everything going all the way back from Horkheimer and critical theory critical legal studies, critical race theory, and intersectionality, when you import the Marxist idea of oppressor and oppressed and bake all of this in and say, let's use this tool, we, I, I care for my flock too much to say this is a good way to do it. I care for my brothers and sisters in Christ. Again, people that I know on the Resolutions Committee that I'm saying, I don't think this is good. Right. I think this is going to skew your judgment, and I, I want us to not do that. So... Um, I think that's where we're at. Absolutely. If, if we understand the gospel rightly, that there is real justification, there's real forgiveness of sin for real sinners, and that when one comes to faith in Jesus Christ, he or she stands before God, completely forgiven, completely counted righteous. If that's true, then there's no place in the Christian way of thinking for critical race theory, intersectionality, and those ideologies that uh, extend from them. There's just no place for it because there is no forgiveness in that system. There's always the oppressor and the oppressed, and the oppressors are always guilty no matter what they do, even if they are not personally responsible. As Robin D'Angelo says and as critical race theory says, you don't have to be conscious of your racism. You just have to be a part of the wrong class. Mm. If you want to dig into this more, a recent Founders Journal, I believe it's our fall journal online, written by Timon Klein. Is that Timon, his name? Yeah. Timon Klein. It's Interesting fellow. Excellent work on uh, kind of the history and then theological um, underpinnings dealing with uh, critical race theory. Uh, just a fascinating study. So check that out. Thank you again for listening to The Sword and the Trowel and joining us as we build and fight. <laughs>